We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today, as always, is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Yeah, good evening. And also in our studio with us today is Michael Turton. He is the man behind uh, what I would say is probably the most prominent English language blog covering Taiwan current affairs, uh, that being The View from Taiwan. Uh, I've been a longtime reader, uh, and we've been looking to get you on the show for a long time now. So uh, really glad to have you here. Thank you, Keith. It's a pleasure to be here. On the show today, we'll be talking about uh, announcements about talks. That is, the talks uh, that are apparently no longer occurring between Taipei and Beijing after the latter announced last week that it was shutting it down. Uh, we'll try to figure out exactly how much hyperventilating is appropriate. Uh, of course, uh, we'll also give an update on President Tsai Ing-wen's South America state visit, uh, which is already wrapped up. Then we've got all that labor unrest to cover, uh, the Brexit spillover effects to look at. Uh, and to round out the show, we'll be taking an extended look at the medical response following the Formosa Fun Coast Water Park fire disaster last year. So... Crazy amount of news to get through, uh, but we're actually going to have to add to that list even a little bit more uh, because we've got two late-breaking stories that uh, we really can't leave out. Uh, up first, uh, Gavin uh, is going to bring us this one. The Aviation Safety Council has issued their final report on last year's Trans-Asia Airways crash, and... They found it was the pilot's fault. Which we kind of already sort of knew. Well, we sort of knew that anyway, just from reports and stuff that's been floating around since the crash. But they released their final crash report on Thursday of this week, in which they said the two pilots of TransAsia Airways Flight 235 failed to follow flight procedure and a series of mistakes and ineffective communication between the two pilots was the main cause of the crash that resulted in 43 people dying. Mm. According to the report, the pilots should have aborted takeoff after noting that a power control system had not been armed. Right. And the twin turboprop airplane began its departure roll. And the report basically went on to say that a series of mistakes occurred due to poor communication between the pilots about the engine problems and then errors led to both of the airplane's engines losing power. And, of course, there we have the famous video shot that went right. all over the world of the plane turning on its side and crossing the expressway into the river. Exactly. And probably most damning uh, for TransAsia is the fact that the pilot that made these mistakes... Uh, failed some of his piloting tests for making very similar mistakes, and yet he was still a pilot. Yes, that well, that came out shortly after the crash, didn't it? That they had problems with their pilot training, right? So, which apparently TransAsia have said they've sorted out. They sent a lot of them to the states to do more training on mm -hmm. this particular airplane. It was a turboprop airplane. All right. So there you go on that one. Uh, that is the latest update. Uh, perhaps the last we're going to hear on that story. Uh, up next, we got another little update. Last week, of course, we discussed the allegations in Vietnam uh, that a massive steel mill constructed by a Taiwan conglomerate uh, was responsible for a massive sea life die-off uh, along the country's central coast. Uh, so that company is the Formosa Plastics Corporation, and uh, I guess we don't have to call it allegations anymore because the subsidiary of the Formosa Plastics Corporation, uh, that being the Formosa Hantin Steel Corporation, accepted responsibility uh, after a Vietnamese government probe uh, determined that all that wastewater that was found uh, along the coast actually came up from pipes uh, that were connected to that steel mill. Uh, those were secret pipes that were not supposed to be there. Uh, discharging affluent and various gross stuff that was also not supposed to be there. Uh, and as we heard last week uh, from Yang Nguyen of the Law podcast, uh, this all caused huge outrage uh, when the news broke, broke in April. Uh, there were protests. There were allegations against the government of a cover-up going on. Uh, it seems like the government, uh, either because of public pressure or something else that's going on, they've kind of come clean on the issue, uh, and they have now slapped Formosa uh, Plastics with a $500 million fine. So uh, we're going to have to wait to see if that fine is actually carried out. Uh, we're going to have to wait to see uh, how the public in Vietnam reacts to all this. Uh, but it uh, seems like the story uh, has kind of moved in a uh, somewhat more positive direction. 
I, for one, will be looking to the uh, Lua podcast to get the latest on all this, uh, see what their take on all of this is. But that is just uh, by way of giving a very brief update on that story. Obviously, a lot more to it. Uh, But we have to move on now because there is so much to get to. Up next, uh, we're going to take a look at the Thai administration on the international front. Lots of big news to get to this week. Of course, uh, Tsai is just about wrapping up her trip to Panama and Paraguay. Uh, that could have been a big enough headline all by itself, uh, but we got more than that this week. All the way back in this hemisphere, uh, cross-strait ties hit a bit of an impasse, a bit of a snag this week, after Beijing announced it is shutting it down, shutting down communications, Gavin. Yeah, apparently the hotline, the big, much-touted hotline between the Mainland Affairs Council and China's Taiwan Affairs Council, apparently, according to the current government, it hasn't been used since the last government left the office and the new government came in. Apparently Mm. the the red phone's just sitting there collecting dust. Mm -hmm. So I've got a nice cover on it. Those glass covers under the road phone you see in the movies. Yeah, it's gonna it, it's gonna save on maintenance costs, really. It would save on telephone bills as well. One there you go. Thought, yeah, but apparently, in a more serious note, which technically it is a bit of a serious issue, the phone is not being used because, of course, Beijing has said we're not talking to you because your government doesn't adhere to the 1992 consensus. To which the government has turned around here and said, well, we are keeping our door open to China for bilateral contact and communication. And earlier this week, as President Tsai Ing-wen was just about to leave Paraguay, she made a comment to the media in Paraguay and Sension, the city thereof. And she said, well, she's calling on Beijing to show understanding and flexibility in efforts to push for progress in cross-strait dialogue, even though Beijing has said it's all stalled. She also mentioned the fact that in her May 20th inauguration, speech. She said she demonstrated maximum goodwill and flexibility, and mm-hmm. she hopes China can also be more flexible in its thinking. Of course, the sticking point is the 1992 consensus. And the One which, China Principle. And the One China Principle, which, of course, Beijing wants to shove down everybody's throats, which the Mara administration accepted. The Thai administration, however, says while well, meetings did take place in 1992 in Singapore, the agreement is somewhat questionable as to when it was come up with, so to speak. All right. So uh, that is uh, Gavin's take right there. That's a a quick little rundown of the whole thing. Uh, Let's finally give Michael a chance to talk. He's been sitting there so patiently for the last couple of minutes. Um, So, I mean, if you listen to the international media uh, that has been looking at this, this is it. This is it. This is the impasse between uh, the Taiwan government and the Beijing government that we've been uh, waiting for all this time. We are there. Uh, The lines have been drawn Oh, or is it less than that? I mean, if you listen to Taiwan observers that watch a little bit more closely, it sounds like it's a little less than that. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people who've been commenting on this have said it's a little bit less than that. Mm-hmm. It's a largely symbolic move, and you'll note that Beijing made this announcement during the middle of Tsai's trip, obviously hoping to displace some of her positive media coverage with this mm. negative event. Well-timed. Yes, very well-timed. Beijing is slowly learning how to manage the media, mm-hmm. the international media, and this is the way it does it. We're cutting off communications, and everyone is going to say, oh, no, tension's going to rise. Things are bad, but actually, life is going on as always. So no one in Taiwan is refusing to get on airplanes and fly to China because Beijing has cut this communication route. Mm-hmm. There's, no concrete, uh, there's no concrete signals of tension. You know, missiles are being moved. People are being kicked out of China, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Well, and, and even if we look to the last year or so uh, when communication was going on, it's not like any agreements were being signed. So, I, I mean, in, in practical terms, what does this really change? Nothing. Uh, all of the uh, – a lot of – I won't say all, but a lot of the communication between the two sides takes place through uh, a large network of formal and informal organizations, business groups, individuals, prominent individuals who visit back and forth. Uh, the whole Matsu religion, uh, religious cult is an important nexus of cross-strait relations, which enables people to travel back and forth. I think the first direct trip from Taiwan in the modern era was a Matsu ship, wasn't it? Yeah, that it that was went from Taichung to uh, Taijong Fujian? To yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. So the, there's all these different and sometimes unorthodox channels of communication between the two sides. And life will go on. What's one of the, sorry, but one of the interesting things is, that, of course, there was more ROC nationals deported from another country to China. Of course, the other week. Mm-hmm. And apparently officials have said that while the, they were deported from Cambodia, 25 of them last Friday, and officials have said they haven't heard anything from China about this since they were sent there. So mm. whether this, although Michael said it doesn't, it, it's not a big problem for Joe Blow public, I guess if you're one of these 25 poor ROC nationals who's now banged up in China, it might be a bit of a problem for you if the government in Beijing is not talking to the people here. 
here, here, here's a question that's kind of been uh, on my mind recently. I mean, is there anything that the Thai administration could do that would change the trajectory that Beijing is on? Uh, I mean, we when when the way that this is generally portrayed is this the real linchpin here is whether or not Tsai affirms uh, the 1992 consensus affirms that Taiwan and China are part of one China, uh, just not defining who's who and what's what. Uh, is that really a sticking point for Beijing? I mean, it, it it seems like another way of interpreting this is that. Beijing just fundamentally does not trust uh, any DPP administration. They're going to do what they can to discredit it and do what they can to destabilize it, make it less successful. I mean, is there anything that would change that equation? I think there are a couple of things. Uh, one is the U.S. attitude. And you'll notice that, that there's been no public pressure from the U.S. to to have Tsai accept the 1992 consensus. The U.S. Has, has been basically, things are great, we're happy, you guys keep talking. And uh, in the China administration, of course, the U.S. attitude is somewhat different. <laughs> So I think that uh, the U.S. is a is a major uh, uh, factor. Another one would be Japan, which increasingly is sticking its fingers into Chinese business, the South China Sea, and there's been some talk of a of a Taiwan Relations Act style legislation passed in Japan. So I think uh, Japan is kind of the, the a hidden factor, or a dark horse that could uh, really affect events here, probably negatively, but because uh, China doesn't like Japan. Mm. But I think fundamentally, you're right. There's th- but. To me, the interesting thing with the 1992 consensus is that Beijing is not directly saying you must accept one China. It's using this language, mm. 1992 consensus, to cover this one China idea. So almost in a way, you could say there's a kind of flexibility here if we could only locate it somehow. And I think mm. Tsai's done a good job of that, saying, mm. well, we accept that something happened in Singapore, but no one's going to be very clear about you know what it is that happened. So, so you think that uh, there's some chance that... Uh, Beijing might find that acceptable at some point in the future? I think they already have. The thing about Beijing is that it always makes a lot of fierce noises, Mm -hmm. but nothing concrete ever happens. Taiwanese businessmen in China are never arrested en masse. Mm -hmm. You know, no one is ever kicked out of China. The the flow of students doesn't stop. The trade doesn't stop. All these things go right on. So basically, for me, anyway, watching from over here, uh, most of the tension and noise occurs in the media. It doesn't occur in the real world. Mm. Well, uh, we are part of that media and part of that noise, uh, so let's <laughs> continue our noise making as, uh, as much as we can. Uh, Gavin, really quick before we wrap up this uh, segment, and I mean very quick because we still have a lot more to get to, uh, there were some other things that happened on Ty's trip this week, uh, a couple of controversies, one uh, involving the phrase, I believe it was uh, President Tsai Ing-wen of Taiwan, something along those lines. Oh, she introduced herself as the president of Taiwan. Which she signed a guest book. Or... A guest book, well, it? She introduced herself and signed a guest book, said, hi, I'm the president of Taiwan. Lots of love, love to stay, to whatever she said in the guest book. Well, apparently this comment irked some people here. Mm. Most notably, it irked the KMT, which I found quite odd, seeing as they're jumping up and down most of the time using the word Taiwan in their talks. But apparently they didn't like this. They said she should have used the correct term, as in president of the Republic of China. Mm-hmm. All right, so a bit of a stir there. The other, uh, really, yep. the only other big news is uh, yeah. The other news is they arrested the guy that rang up the air police or the police. Oh, that one, yeah, I forgot about that the police, one. The, 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 this, this, in fact, happened the day that Tsai Ing-wen left Taiwan on June yeah. the twenty-fourth, a Friday. This was the day, of course, China Airlines flight attendants were on strike. Apparently, the police hotline one one zero for anybody that wants to know how to call the police for legitimate purposes, purposes not for goofing around, not because you not for anything like that. That's a no, no. No. And on June the 24th at 8.25am, the police hotline received a call from a gentleman who claimed that there was a bomb on Tsai Ing-wen's aeroplane. Oh, he, he, no. He, he was an employee of well, the airline? let me get there. Let me get there because okay. it builds up a bit, this story. Right. You know. Apparently, the, he rang up and um, said, look, there's a bomb has been placed on the aeroplane. And the policeman, hang on a minute. And they did whatever they did. They haven't disclosed what they did, but no doubt they rang Taoyu International Airport and people with at least one dog probably walked around the aeroplane and got on the aeroplane. Those sorts of guys, yeah. Yeah. Basically, and it, obviously there wasn't a bomb on it, and police arrested him several days later, and they haven't, they didn't release his identity. The funny thing was they didn't release his identity, but the first thing that happened was the Taoyuan Flight Attendants Union sort of inadvertently released his identity by admitting he was one of theirs. Uh-huh. He was a flight attendant. They were harbor- harboring... 
Well, they weren't harbouring. They did turn around and say, look, we don't condone such action and we didn't encourage him to make any such threats. Mm. And we no, no word on what uh, inspired this, this There's individual. There's no word. The police are actually keeping mum on it, basically. Mm. But an investigation is ongoing. But All right. needless to say, we could joke around and say, well, he's getting his own cabin quite shortly. I'm sure there will be a lot With more leg room. lots of leg room. Exactly. Yes, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, dusting off a joke that we made a couple of days ago. Anyway... Up next, so uh, we're going to leave all that international diplomacy and strife and uh, worrying for another day and move on to domestic uh, strife and worrying. So apparently, uh, Taiwan uh, has a labor movement. I don't know where it's been this whole time, but it came out in force this week. Uh, and I don't know if I can say this on air, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to. Uh, it's kicking ass. It's kicking some serious ass. It didn't win every fight uh, that it picked this week, uh, but it won a couple. We're going to get to uh, some policy controversy in a second, uh, you know, covering the work week and how much Taiwanese workers are uh, expected to work. But before we get there, we've got some uh, striking news. Uh, of course, last oh. week we were talking about... <laughs> uh, of course, it wasn't even a pun. Barely a pun. Barely a pun. Uh, of course, last week we were talking about the China Airlines uh, stewardesses strike. Uh, that wrapped up. They got most of what they wanted. Uh, next up, we had the, chairli- uh, the China Airlines Employees Union strike. They just threatened to strike, and they got most of what they want. Uh, so now we're on to basically strike three. Uh, oh, no. Okay, oh, no. That, another... Oh. oh, I didn't... That one was... Oh. I, that, I swear that wasn't planned. Was not planned. Uh, <laughs> we're on to the third potential strike. Uh, now we're hearing about uh, Thai Power. Uh, the workers for Thai Power threatening to strike, apparently. Uh, this is all in the course of seven days. It's going boom, 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 boom. Uh, labor is on a rampage, apparently. Let's just uh, skip the China Airlines entirely and skip to Thai Power. What's going on there, Gavin? Your Thai Power's labor union has said it, will, it won't take strike action. It had threatened to take strike action, but Economics Minister Li Guang met with them yesterday, being Thursday, and he apparently agreed with the union representatives for some of their demands. Now, part of this proposed privatisation of Thai power involves splitting the company up into three areas, those being power generation, power transmission and distribution, and also power sales. Now, they're going to do this by basically amending the Electricity Act, which will help privatise the state-owned company. And the government have basically said... We're going to privatise you. Now, power generation and power sales will be going the privatisation route. Hmm. But Thai Power will only be left with its power distribution from the grid business, basically. I see. Now, this has irked the Labour Union because, of course, they're worried about their members' jobs. I believe they have something like 30,000 members. Technically, Hmm. for Taiwan's size, 30,000 members in a union is quite powerful. Obviously, in the UK and America, 30,000 member unions wouldn't be considered overly powerful. Mm. But here they are. Got some clout. Basically, and they met with um, the economics minister yesterday on Thursday. And apparently, according to the union, the economics minister agreed to include union reps in the process of deliberating amendments to the Electricity Act and the eventual privatisation of the state-owned company. Mm. The union also demanded that these any amendments and any talks about privatisation be made in an open and and transparent manner. All right. And apparently, the economics minister, Li Guang agreed to all this, basically probably just to avert a strike. Although they had said they wouldn't take open strike action, as in they all walk off the job, they basically threatened to take minor strike action during typhoon days, sort of days running up to typhoons and days after typhoons, hmm. which would have basically led to... Basically, more rural areas and out-of-the-way areas suffering because, of course, in typhoons, electricity generators do go down and Thai Power would have had to send teams in to fix them. The strikes would have affected the teams going in to fix these generators and distribution hubs that got damaged in the typhoon. So we can only hope that that doesn't happen. Uh, Now, last week, we were already talking about the potential for uh, snowballing uh, in terms of, you know, bigger strikes, uh, more unions getting involved in strikes. Uh, Michael, it looks like that's what we're seeing. Yeah, that's one reason the uh, the flight attendant strike was shut down so quickly, I think, and they gave in so fast because they didn't want to see it snowball. Mm. And uh, But doesn't that just encourage uh, a, 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 a other groups to, you know, they saw that it worked the first time? Well... <laughs> I think what we're going to see is that management at China Airlines is going to slowly roll back a lot of those uh, 
concessions. Mm. Uh, that's what I'm already hearing from my friends who are married to flight attendants. Mm. So I think one, one strike they were really fearing, which many of us uh, remarked on at the time, was the nurses. Because I know I write academic articles about nursing in Taiwan, and I monitor some of the discussion groups, and I know they were watching that strike very closely. Mm. And uh, nurses are probably the most uh, maltreated set of female workers on the island They. The horror stories I hear from my nursing students and from my friends in nursing and from the people I write papers with are just unbelievable. Mm. That goes back to the numbers, Michael, because like I said, the Thai Power Union had 30,000 members. The Flight Attendant Union had like four, three or 4,000 members, while the other China Airlines Employee Union had 10,000 members. Mm. Of course, these numbers wane in significance to the number of nurses in hospitals across the oh, island. For sure. Thousands of them. And nursing, like flight attendant, nursing is a traditional female occupation in Taiwan. Hmm. And uh, one flows into the other. Apparently, flight attendants are uh, – a lot of the nurses want to be flight attendants, and nursing is actually a useful qualification if you want to become a flight attendant, I've heard. Hmm. So there's a connection between the two groups. So, I mean, is what we're seeing the rising of uh, labor consciousness in Taiwan? <laughs> Speak for labor. Speak for labor. It's impossible for me to speak for labor. It's really hard to say. Every time, you know, I've been here how many years? 20, 27 years now. And every time someone says to me, we're seeing the consciousness of X rising, I just want to say, but yeah, I've seen this three times before already. Mm. So we have to wait. A little bit of perspective right there. Yeah. All right. So I, I suppose we're just left to see where this all goes for now. Uh, but we have another story involving labor to get to this week. This one's more labor and industry meeting together in a very uh, unhappy and cantankerous marriage. Uh, and uh, I, I warn our listeners in advance, we're going to get a little wonky here because we've got to talk about labor regulations and the work week. Uh, sort of a big package deal that uh, we saw this week, Gavin. The uh, the cabinet announced this week uh, that they are, in fact, bringing us the 40-hour work week. Before, it was an 84-hour every two-week kind of deal. So now we have a 40-hour work week. But in exchange, uh, we're going to have to give up some holidays. Apparently, the government or the cabinet, this is a cabinet proposal. It hasn't been ratified by lawmakers yet. This is the cabinet. So the cabinet sat around this week and said, hey, we've got an idea. Let's have a 40-hour work week. Let's make sure that everybody in the private sector is entitled to two days off every seven-day work period. Mm -hmm. And then they got into the problem of the holidays, which, of course, a few weeks ago, I believe, we were talking about this on this show, where the government wanted us... The government wanted to go... This The previous government had already made plans to slash seven national holidays. Right. And the current government, at the beginning, said, that sounds like a good idea. We'll give all them holidays back to the workers and they'll love us. Mm -hmm. Then someone thought about it. And then industry yelled and someone thought about it some more. And businesses yelled more. And then mm -hmm. some government bod in a pod somewhere thought about it some more and said, hang on a minute, maybe this could hurt the island's economy if we have more days off. Mm-hmm. And therewith lieth the problem. And so then they were sending out kind of mixed signals for a while. It looked like they were going to stick to their guns for a little bit. But no, now that we've seen the final proposal, they are gone. They decided that those seven days would have helped. They decided that those seven days would have done bad things to the island's economy. All right. And uh, so there was some other criticism from labor groups that we heard this week, uh, mostly involving uh, the way that the two days off a week are granted. One day is a fixed day. The other day is kind of a floating day. Flexi day. Flexi day. Flexi day. Basically, you, you, you're as, this, is, this, is, this concerns the private sector, not the public sector. Mm -hmm. The public sector being a bit different. They wanted the hourly wage to increase over the hours you have to work on this flexi day. So, mm. okay, for the first three hours of said flexi day, you earn so much an hour. After the fourth hour of the flexi day, you earn X amount. And then the fifth hour, you earn X amount per hour. Mm -hmm. And the sixth amount, the seventh amount, and the eighth amount, you earn different amounts of money per hour. See, I said it was going to get wonky. There we go. Oh, it is wonky. did get nice and wonky right there. Well, basically, I mean, the bottom line is what a lot of these labor groups are saying is... Uh, it just creates a shell game where, you know, the day gets moved around, but it isn't actually meaningful. There's some tricks the employers can play where it, it's not a real day off uh, in the way, you know, protected in the way that we would normally think of it. Let's zoom out now. Look at the whole grand picture, because, you know, a lot of people looking at this, if you just look at the seven day holiday by itself, it does look like a pretty massive cave to industry on the part of uh, the Thai administration, because they said that they weren't going to do it, uh, the, the industry whined, then they cut it out. 
But if you know, if you look at this as part of a larger deal that is bringing a forty-hour work week, uh, you could say, "All right, well, labor is angry, uh, industry is a little bit angry. They're both upset by this deal, so there must be something good there. It, maybe this is the product of compromise, which is you know what you expect from politics. Uh, that's that's how things go." Uh, Michael, how do you how do you see all this thing? Should we look at this as the product of compromise? Uh, yeah, I think the DPP is in a tough spot, and um, well, I think what we're going to see over time is the DPP is going to shift more to becoming a a pro business party, mm. especially as the KMT continues to fade over time. Mm. And the DPP has a long history of uh, promising things to Labor, mm-hmm. and then when it gets in power, saying, "I'm sorry, what did you say?" But uh, I don't know. It's it's hard to say how this is going to play out. A lot of it depends on what happens to the uh, individuals within the DPP who mm. comes up to power within the DPP. Because you know, DPP is a huge, a, a big tent organized under Taiwan independence. And as it comes into power, the splits between the different wings of the DPP, the the social progressives, the 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 business types, all these all these things are going to really depend on what happens to the individuals within the DPP. Mm. All right. Uh, well, before we wrap up the first half of this show, uh, reading your blog, I know that you do have uh, some love in your heart for discussing the KMT. So oh. uh, really wouldn't be doing my part unless I, I, I gave you some opportunity. Uh, you know, they've been kind of hanging back in the headlines recently. Their, their, their role has really been opposition, you know, giving criticism to uh, the government. Uh, what, what, what significance uh, should Taiwan observers uh, attribute to the KMT at this point? What, 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 what's their role right now at this moment in Taiwan politics? That's, they could play the role of a real constructive opposition. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, they're trying to, uh, they're trying to hold on to what they have, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, as long as the KMT continues to imagine itself as a, as a colonial political organization rather than as a Taiwan-centered political party, it's not going to be able to play a very constructive role in Taiwan politics. Mm. And that's very sad for Taiwan. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of us have, would love to see the KMT become a Taiwan-oriented, Taiwan-centered, you know, I guess you'd call it, what, a pro-business conservative party. Mm-hmm. And that would be a really good thing for Taiwan. But so mm. far, we're not seeing any sign of that. And of this- course, they got rid of their they got rid of their former spokesperson this week, didn't they? Oh, that was wonderful to see. Young Wei Jong, <laughs> who's actually in KMT terms, you you could call him a liberal. I mean, basically, he he was into transitional justice. He did say things about the KMT statement about the twenty seventh anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. He didn't like that at all. He said you should have gone further. Mm. But apparently, the KMT didn't like these comments and said they undermined the party's reputation. Well, I think that's why they got rid of him. Yeah. Basically, that's what they said. Yeah, well, I, I liked his answer, though, because apparently old Mr. Young took to his Facebook account and he basically said, I wish the KMT all the best, but I will continue to work on issues of transitional justice and political and social reform. So he was hoofed at the party because he wanted these reforms. Yeah, well, that's the KMT we're seeing today. It's it's circling the wagons. Mm. What they should have done was made him the chairman. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I, I think you probably would have gotten your uh, KMT membership revoked as well. Uh, so I don't know that they're going to be coming to you for advice, but maybe they should. Maybe they should. All right. Well, uh, we are going to let uh, Mr. Michael Churton have the last word on that because we are coming up on a commercial break. When we return, uh, will that Brexit tsunami lap up on the shores of Taiwan? Uh, we'll get the view from a Taiwan business insider. Uh, and then at the end of the show, the Formosa Fun Coast disaster uh, one year on, uh, among the tragedy, there were glimmers of heroism. We take a look at the response from Taiwan's medical establishment. All that and more when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of the top stories from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps and Michael Turton. The Brexit sent markets tumbling last week, and Taiwan was not spared. It's a bit of a tumble itself, uh, but we are already recovering, apparently. But we're going to take a look, rather than at the uh, short exigencies of market fluctuations, we're going to try to get a look at the more long-term impact of this uh, world-momentous event on Taiwan. Uh, And to bring us that look, we have Michael Boyden, who has contributed to the show before. He is the Managing Director of Taiwan Asia Strategy Consulting, and he also hosts the Taiwan Business Leaders Forum. Uh, And I believe he is also a bona fide Englishman. Is that right? That's absolutely right. 100%. Yeah. 
All right. So uh, we are getting the view from the UK. Uh, a little bit more of an even keel uh, view from the UK than we might get from uh, Gavin. I'm sure he'd have some invective to uh, spit in there. Uh, so let's just start by laying the table very simply. Currently, you know, not even looking at the Brexit, what are interactions between the UK and Taiwan like right now? Well, the UK and Taiwan are, are fairly significant trading partners for each other. Uh, the, you know, I think the total is somewhere north of six or seven billion uh, US dollars a year now. And it's, um, well, that, that's not a huge volume uh, as trade figures go. It's important in that a lot of uh, British exports to Taiwan are actually, uh, and somewhat surprisingly, in the high-tech sector. Uh, you might think that Taiwan doesn't need that kind of uh, input, but apparently it does. So they are uh, quite important trading partners. More than that, uh, Britain has been Taiwan's uh, favored destination for uh, investment into the EU. Uh, it's uh, Taiwanese companies have found it when they wanted a foothold within the EU, have found Britain to be the most uh, the most friendly destination. Uh, there have been numerous instances. Now, uh, of course, all that presumably will go, uh, assuming that Brexit goes ahead, as I suppose it will. Uh, the uh, Taiwanese investors looking for uh, an investment-friendly country within the EU borders will have to look elsewhere, probably Germany. Mm. Right. So uh, kind of looking at that broader picture uh, the Thai administration, the cabinet, kind of put a positive spin on the whole thing this week. Uh, they were sort of making the case that uh, as the EU faces some trade challenges, they're going to try to blunt that blow to trade uh, by focusing more on Asia. Uh, and that might end up uh, benefiting Taiwan as well. Do you see anything to that argument? I don't think, with respect to uh, President Tsai, I don't think there's anything positive to say uh, about Brexit or that will come out of Brexit at all for anybody. It's a <laughs> rather unequivocal not, not okay. situation. Mm. Uh, even uh, in view of the, the chaos that's followed, uh, 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 I gather that a lot of uh, people who voted leave in the campaign are having now experiencing buyer's remorse. Mm. So, uh, I, so I, that, that's, that's where I stand. Now, uh, certainly uh, President Tsai uh, wishes to de-emphasize trade above all with China. And uh, if, if the EU indeed does look uh, to, towards Asia to, so to speak, plug the gap created by trade with Britain, uh, that could work to Taiwan's advantages. Uh, now, but uh, when the dust has settled and when all is said and done and an arrangement has been negotiated between the UK and the, and the EU, the remaining 27, uh, Britain will still be a significant trading partner for the EU. Uh, so it's not as if there's going to be a huge gaping hole left in the EU's trade uh, after Britain exits. So uh, I think we need to bear that in mind. Mm. But uh, And I think so there's everything to be gained, I believe, by the U, uh, Taiwan and the UK continuing to build and even strengthen, if they can, their existing trade relationship mm. uh, against, uh, against that future. Mm. Right, I've got some boring statistics here for you, Michael. You quoted Taiwan's trading and with the UK. Here we go. This is from the Ministry of Economic Affairs. Apparently, the UK is Taiwan's 16th largest trading partner worldwide and third largest in Europe. And according to figures from the ministry, Taiwanese companies have invested in 189 projects in the UK. Mm. And these cover information communications technology, financial services, green energy and transportation industries. So there you go. There you go. So it's a significant trading relationship, and um, it's at risk uh, from Brexit because uh, a lot of that investment, Taiwanese investment, into the UK, as I said, was predicated on the fact of the UK being a member of the EU. Right. And I did like the way that the British Trade Office here came out three da- five days after the vote and made a statement. It only took them five days. I thought that was quite punctual of them, actually. 
<laughs> anyway, the acting representative... No, I know you shouldn't comment on that. They'll throw you out, wouldn't they? <clears throat> anyway, the acting representative here, Damien Potter, has said that both sides enjoy a flourishing relationship with bilateral trade and investment going back over a decade. And regardless of the Brexit vote, the UK hopes to continue to work closely with Taiwan. Hmm. He also made special mention, of course, of the 10,000-some Taiwanese students currently studying in the UK. And he did try to allay fears about their status, saying basically the Brexit vote has no immediate effect on their visa status in the UK whatsoever. Because, of course, they get European Union visas when they travel. So at least on the uh, diplomatic well, rhetorical front. I mean, those students head to the UK not because the UK is part of uh, Europe, but because of the excellence of the UK's universities. Mm. So uh, I think that will. there's no reason for that to change at all. I studied at one of them. They were excellent. Does that sound really clever of me? Uh, I, I don't know how much of an advertise. I don't think they'll be using that in any of their radio advertisements anytime soon, those fine universities over there. All right, well, uh, that was just a little taste of the gloom and doom that the Brexit has to serve up everybody around the world, but particularly uh, in Taiwan, at least, you know, well, that's the angle that we're taking on it. Uh, and we got that from Michael Boyd, and once again, he is the Managing Director of Taiwan Asia Strategy Consulting. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. All right. And uh, turning to our last story for the broadcast portion of the show, mm. this week marks one year from one of the worst disasters in Taiwan's recent memory. Uh, of course, I'm talking about the Formosa Fun Coast Water Park fire, which on June 27th of last year uh, left 499 people injured after colored cornstarch uh, ignited in the air, uh, catching many people in the blaze. Uh, now, this was a huge strain on Taiwan's medical establishment. Um, 499 people were injured. 300, about 300, uh, were severely burned. So that is uh, a lot for uh, the hospitals in any country to take on. Uh, Taiwan actually uh, performed admirably. Uh, 15 partygoers uh, did eventually die. Uh, so, you know, it is undoubtedly a huge tragedy. Uh, and, and, and sometimes it's hard to appreciate uh, amongst the tragedy when there are real wins that did occur. Uh, but actually, uh, looking back, it could have been much worse uh, than it was. And uh, to tell us why it wasn't, uh, we have on the show today somebody who worked directly on addressing this disaster. Uh, I'm talking about uh, Hao Jitai. He is the yes, chief sir. of the plastic surgery division at National Taiwan University Hospital. Uh, and he yeah. joins us now. Uh, Dr. Tai, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you to have me here. It's our pleasure. Um, so just to uh, start things out, I mean, mm. if we think back to the kind of news that we were hearing directly after the disaster, mm. we were getting predictions like we would see a death toll in the 40s and the 50s. I mean, we we really did expect the death toll to be much higher than it was. Uh, that never happened. Uh, it was kept down reasonably low. Uh, and it seems like a lot of the credit for that really does, uh, should go to Taiwan's medical establishment. So tell yeah. us a little bit about uh, how that medical establishment responded. Okay. And I, I have a statistics data from the Children Ben Foundation of Taiwan. And from year 2000 to year 2012, and totally more than 15,000 Ben patients. Mm. And the mortality of this patient of the 40 to 49 burn area, the mortality rate is around 70%. And for the fun coast explosion, the average burn area was 41 in this explosion. So we're talking but, about really severe injuries. Yeah, that's why. So the, but the mortality was as low as 3%. Mm. I think there's some reason. Mm. And we have an excellent emergency operation center and to dispatch and transport the patient to the medical center and a hospital. Mm. And we have nine medical centers in the north part of Taiwan, including Taipei, New Taipei City, and the Taoyuan City. Mm. And the medical center provides enough physicians and the excellent medical facility, such as ICU facility, to treat the mass burn patients. Mm. And, we, and many of the Attending hospital, call on the off-duty or even retired physician and the nurses for assistance. So it sounds um, like uh, a big part of this is yeah. the hospital's ability to coordinate, work together, yeah, that's right. use all their resources together. Yeah. 
and so the patient is dispatched evenly to、mm. the hospital,、mm-hmm. and the hospital they can do their best. I I, I will emphasize another、mm. important factor to improve the the、mm-hmm. outcome. That we have a fully support from government,、mm. especially from the Ministry of Health and Welfare,、mm. and the government announced all medical expense of the patient were covered by the National Health Insurance Administration and the programs,、mm. and the Ministry of Health and Welfare spent about two hundred million of purchasing on purchasing cadavaskin from overseas to treat. The victims.、Mm, so we're talking the, about、uh, yeah. skin transplants, right there. Yeah, that's right. That's,、mm-hmm. that, 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 that's important、mm. for the treat of the burn. And help、uh, help our listeners understand、uh, how big of a challenge was that.、Uh, my、mm. understanding is that、uh, Taiwan's.、Uh, I mean, this is a little gruesome to be talking about on air, but Taiwan's、uh, supply of、uh, skin donations、uh, was not nearly enough. Uh, yeah, to、right. cover、uh, the needs for this disaster, so help us understand how big of a challenge was that to meet those needs. Okay, and since two thousand and one, and more than one hundred people annually in Taiwan suffer from severe burn,、mm. but we have fewer than forty skin donations each year,、mm. and the skin bank. Just has less than five thousand square centimeter of skin、uh, of cadaver skin for use.、Mm. That is not enough for the clinical use. Right. So we have to purchase the cadaver skin from the United States and the, the Netherlands,、mm. and it's spent. I said more than two thousand millions.、Mm. Now you actually went、uh, to Europe to kind of present some of、uh, Taiwan's experience.、Uh, the, there was a, a big conference、uh, headed by the EU,、uh, looking at、uh, you know responses、uh, to massive burn disasters and treating、uh, burn victims in、uh, you know big disasters like this. So you know clearly there was some interest in the EU、uh, for the、yeah. Taiwan experience. Clearly、yeah. they saw some value there. What would you say would be the difference between how Taiwan responded to this event、uh, and how other countries、uh, respond? Why was Taiwan more successful? Okay, and let, let's meet in is a workshop of a European Medical Corp of ECHO,、mm. uh, ECHO. And the ECHO means European Commission of Humanitarian Aid and Civil Protection. And the main issue was on dealing with massive burn casualty disaster.、Mm. And the participants were from thirteen EU country and Taiwan and the ECHO office.、Mm. So、uh, we we just share our experience on the national system and hospital experience for dealing with the burn victim. And、uh, the lessons learned from the mass casualty disaster,、mm. and the system is different from between countries.、Mm-hmm. I, I just say we have a nine medical center in the north part of Taiwan,、mm. but in the United、uh, European, the medical center is at a different country. It's not so concentrated、oh, at、yeah. the the one area.、Mm. So that would、uh, make a bigger challenge for them. Yeah, that's why. Mm-hmm. So their their challenge is on the transportation of the patient、mm-hmm. to the farther away hospital.、Mm-hmm. But in Taipei and the north part of Taiwan, the transportation is quite good,、mm-hmm. and our emergency operation system function well.、Mm-hmm. So the patient arrived the hospital just within one or two hours、mm-hmm. and received the treatment immediately.、Mm-hmm. So that was、yeah. a really important factor. Yeah, that's why.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Uh, what did you want to? T- yeah, and I I I also share our experience in the treatment of the patient,、mm-hmm. and we share our triage of a massive major burn at the uh, spot on the spot and、mm-hmm. at the emergency room,、mm-hmm. and we also share our experience in preparing the ICU for the massive major burn patients.、Mm-hmm. And we set up a medical team for the massive major burn, and we have twenty-four hours care for this patient.、Mm. Yeah. 
And besides, we also show our some specific treatment of the burn patient, such as the micro skin grafting mm. for the burn wound. Mm, I see. So pretty technical stuff there. So you know, you 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 were actually leading a team that was oh, yeah, responding right. to this disaster. You yeah. were there. Uh, you were telling us before we turned on these mics that you know you you were the one putting in the late nights, always on call, uh, making yeah. sure that this was treated appropriately. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that experience? I mean, that seems like an extreme experience, uh, a huge thing to be a part of. Help our our listeners understand just a little bit what that was like. Yeah. To to lead a team, that's why we have to set up a a goal mm. to treat I mean, the patient. The first goal is we have to uh, make every every victim survive. We don't allow to have any mortality. Mm. It is the first goal, and the second goal is we do not want the patient have any organ failure. Mm. And this is the the two goal. And then our schedule is we have to have a morning meeting every day mm. and discuss the patient, especially mm. the patient in critical condition. We have to pick up the critical patient. Mm-hmm. And besides, we have to have a patient round twice a day, at least twice a day. Mm. We look at the patient in the morning and in the evening. Mm. And then we have to communicate to each other uh, as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. So we use uh, some uh, IT technology. And uh, so just kind of reflecting on this most recent disaster, yeah. uh, of course, Taiwan is no stranger to uh, large disasters, uh, earthquakes, flooding, yeah. uh, fairly common occurrence in Taiwan. Yeah. Uh, do you think that the success that we saw, of, uh, you know, uh, in terms of preventing more deaths uh, this time around, uh, do you think that that's because of lessons that Taiwan has learned in the past? Oh yeah, that's right. Mm. Yeah, uh, uh, especially I, I mentioned the emergency operation uh, emergency operation center mm. they function well. Mm. Yeah, it, it's in the nine twenty one earthquake quake mm-hmm. and killing more than twenty four uh, twenty four thousand people so at mm-hmm. that time. And uh, the whole system is chaotic mm. at that time. Yeah, but they make a progress gradually. Mm. And right now, the I say the function and, and they function well mm. right now. So it's been improving. Yeah, that's improving. And uh, last thing that I want to talk to you about is uh, the state of the patients now. Of course, mm. uh, burn injuries take a very long time to heal. We heard uh, in the news uh, earlier this week that. Uh, the final burn victim was discharged from hospital. Uh, so, you know, I mean, just think about that for a second. That means that they were in hospital for an entire year. Uh, but, you know, the last victim has left hospital, but that uh, doesn't mean that the road to recovery is over. Uh, they're still mm. facing a very long recovery process. Uh, so give us some sense of where that is uh, at for uh, the victims. Yeah, all the, all the patient has been released from the hospital. And many still undergo painful rehabilitation mm. and have to face additional surgery, such as the uh, amputation surgery. And most of the wounded patients need the rehabilitation for the physical and emotional scars. Mm. Yeah. So it's not uh, it's not just physical; it's also psychological. Yeah. So, so they need a good family and a social mm. support. And they need to return to job as soon as possible. Mm. Yeah. But the, the there is a, a government funded burn rehabilitation and the post care unit at the new Taipei City Hospital, mm. and the center has expertise physician and the external facility for this burn rehabilitation. Mm. So I think this uh, discharged patient can go to the center for the post-acute care. Mm. So uh, still lots of support uh, that they are going to have. And besides, uh, currently, the National Health Insurance is continuing to cover the expense for the necessary medical care. Mm. So the patient don't have to worry about the cost. Mm. All right. And uh, the last thing uh, that I want to bring up with you is uh, you know, you were mentioning uh, skin donations a bit earlier. Uh, the government is working to address that shortage that you were describing. 
uh, developing a skin bank.、Uh, tell us about those efforts. Yeah, we would like to publicize the importance of a skin donation, and then maintain a skin bank. And we and the National Taiwan University Hospital has a skin bank already, and which is part of the National Skin Bank project,、mm. initiated by the Ministry of the Health and the Welfare last year after the disaster.、Mm. And the Kadapa skin is used to, to temporarily cover the wound, burn wound, and to prevent infection and reduce the risk of the sepsis shock.、Mm. So it's a critical. Factor in stabilizing the patient with severe burns.、Mm-hmm. We would like to encourage the public to register as an organ donor,、mm. so more people could be helped. Doctor Tai, yes. How do we register? Where? And I think you you can sign a registry card、mm. in hospital, every hospital. Okay. Yeah. So I、uh, just a reminder right there to register for organ donorship. Uh, it really does save lives, as you just heard.、Uh, we have been speaking today to Hao Jitai. He is the chief of plastic surgery division at the National Taiwan University Hospital.、Uh, Doctor Tai, really, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you, Key. All right. Well,、uh, on that note,、uh, we are going to have to round out the show.、Uh, we're going to skip our usual podcast bonus story、uh, because the the closest thing to Bonus story type news that we could find was not a funny story. It was an incredibly grim story. Gavin,、uh, we, we we were thinking of talking about、uh, what happened to those poor dogs、uh, at that one military facility.、Uh, I couldn't do it without crying. I shed a tear. I did. Gavin, I couldn't stone, even read the story. Stone cold, Gavin shed a just, tear. My eyes were just so watery. I couldn't read the story. So we certainly couldn't have put、uh, our our listening audience through that if it, if it even melted the the stone cold heart of、uh, Gavin Phipps.、Uh, Figured it would be too much for everybody out there. I want to see that on video. <laughs> <laughs> he、uh, he has a way of covering his tracks. Believe、okay. me, that'll never see the light of day.、Uh, so we're going to skip that. Folks out there、uh, are probably already aware of this. It was already all over the news.、Uh, so we're just going to go straight to the end of the show. That is it for today.、Uh, please do join us again next time. Time when this week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100. Uh, usually starting around 8:20 ish. That's about the time to look for it. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on iTunes, and、uh, we have been posting to the ICRT blog as well.、Uh, if you do make it over to the ICRT blog, please do weigh in on these stories. We would love to hear what you think. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Good evening, good night, and goodbye. Stone cold as always. I am Michael Turton. Good night. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at eight thirty for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM One Hundred.